means here, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. But just to catch us up for those who are new and even for those of us who have been here, is that we really see a progression taking place that most people who study these Beatitudes will talk about in their exposition, and that is it starts with blessed are the poor in spirit, those who own their brokenness, their neediness, their utter dependence upon God to work in their lives. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And then he moves to blessed are those who mourn. So not only those who acknowledge their brokenness, their neediness, and their utter dependence upon God, but those who actually feel it, who own it deep in their souls. And we said, whatever you do not mourn will master you. That is, whatever sin or suffering or brokenness in your story that you don't own, it will own you. It is owning you. And so the blessed life is to get that stuff out of there. It's to call your sin what it is, to call your suffering what it is. And then he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Is that when we receive the comfort of God, in the face of the reality of our pain, our brokenness, our sin, our suffering, then we begin to live more whole, blessed lives. And then we move forward one more. So blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, but also blessed then are those who are meek. And meekness, we've said, is this life of humility, of, of strength under control. It's not being a doormat, but it's actually being someone who has stopped being a doormat for their sin and their suffering. You're no longer under, control, un, under the control of the sin and suffering in your story, but now you've owned it, you've brought it to Jesus, you've let it be covered in the blood, and now you're able to live this free life. And so these first three Beatitudes, we might say, is more of the journey inward. Then last week we looked at sort of the, the hinge of this door now turning us outward. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That is, we get this hunger now that we want, we want to long for and know God more deeply than anything in the world. And we want to see his kingdom established, first of all, in our own hearts in every way, but also in the world. So we talked about both personal righteousness and public righteousness. We want to see God glorified in every aspect of our society, but we also want to realize that that starts with ourselves. That we long for God, we hunger and thirst live a life that is right before him through the work of Jesus, but it is also right in our actual lives through the power of the Spirit. And this morning we come, although again we're not on the screen right, to, to this next one. Now we're moving this focus outward. Blessed are those, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your mercy. Just amaze us with what we sang that our sins, they are many, but your mercy is more. God, you are amazing, glorious, wonderful in your mercy. And we pray today that you would take your word through your spirit and you would shape mercy into the core of who we are even more than you have. We pray that we would go out and live merciful lives. We would not see mercy as weakness, but we would see mercy as worship. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In our house right now, there's been this trend, uh, Kaylee could bear witness to it and Cassie could too, of people saying this little phrase, but it's true. So you are a mean, horrible person. You shouldn't speak that way to people, but it's true. 
this food stinks. Why do we have to have this for supper? We need to be thankful for what we have. But it's true. You did a horrible job. Well, maybe there might be a, a kinder way to say that. But it's true. I mean, this is a mindset, don't we have in our in our lives if we're not careful? Is but it's true. But it's true. I mean, we see this even in the way that we discourse in our in our country, in our nation, and particularly in our politics, right? We want somebody to just tell it like it is. Now, it might not be totally like it is, right? Maybe there's some more nuance that could be given, but we kind of like this, but it's true, right? Just give it to them, right? Just put a funnel in their mouth, take a big old bowl of truth, and just shove it down in them. Yeah. But the parts we like, right, are the truth. We want to give it to people. Mercy feels naive. Mercy feels like the way to lose. Mercy feels like opening yourself up to be manipulated, to be used. Mercy feels dangerous. I'm reminded of a story that one of my dad's co-workers told me one time about he was, he was teaching his son the value of life. I may have shared this with some of you. He went and stood off of his tall porch that they had, and when his son was little, he said, son, run and jump. And his son ran and jumped, and he was holding his hands out, and right when he jumped, he stood to the side and let his son just fall flat on his face. And he said, I want to teach you a valuable lesson, son. Don't trust anybody. And I think that's how, if we're honest, we can kind of feel like mercy works. It's a setup. Other people are roaming the world looking for who are the merciful. So I can use them. So we've got to feel this. It feels like, I wish I'd have got that right, because I'm going to keep turning and pointing here for no good reason, is it feels like Jesus is setting us up. It kind of feels like that in each of these Beatitudes. They're so countercultural. The way of the kingdom of Christ is so the opposite of what we feel in our souls. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Aren't we just supposed to be happy all the time? Blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This sounds like boring. Yeah, but, it, but to many people it seems the opposite. Thing, to feel this tension. Because mercy certainly didn't look like it was winning to the day when Jesus walked the earth. We've got to realize that. That if Jesus is proclaiming this, he's not saying it into this nice setting where everyone's just walking around being nice to one another and showing mercy. No, as Jesus said this, probably in the distance you could have seen a Roman Empire that had the same motto as uh, the Cobra Kai, you know where I'm going with this? Dojo in Karate Kid. Right? And what did they say? No mercy. You never watched that movie? It'd be a good spiritual exercise for you. And if there's parts in there that are not good for your children, that's my fault. So. All right. No mercy, right? No mercy. The religious people of the day, we're going to look at this in just a second. It was as if their motto was, no mercy. No mercy. And maybe it feels that way to you, but what we see is that mercy remained in the heart of God, even when it was against the ways of the world.
and that we're called as God's people to trust in the mercy of God as if we are to persevere on the mission of God. Because if we think we're going to be about this mission of God, of seeing His kingdom displayed in this world, seeing disciples made who come from the broken, the burnout, and the bored, then if you've not realized this yet, mercy is going to have to be at the heart of everything that we do. Mercy. At the heart of everything. But we mock it in our heads sometimes or in our hearts. Our, my, some of my favorite movies are westerns. And you know what the great theme of the greatest westerns are? No mercy. Right? You want to see John Wayne or Clint Eastwood just walk up and put somebody down. You want to see vengeance. Forgiveness is boring, it's bogus, and as we said, it can even be dangerous. There's a TV show we're watching right now, and it's just sort of the theme of it. It's like, okay, we have these people, they've surrendered. I feel like we just need to shoot them all in the head. Because every time that we give mercy to anyone, it just comes back and bites us. In the church in this day, or, or the people of Israel, as it were, we see that they resisted mercy deeply. And why did they do it? They feared contamination. So the name of our church, Matthew's Table Church, comes from Matthew chapter 9. And we see Jesus calling together his disciples, but also the tax collectors and sinners, the outcasts, the people who shouldn't be there. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, looked on that scene and they said, this isn't right. Those people shouldn't be allowed to the table until they have paid for or changed their lives. There was this fear of contamination that kept their distance. But Jesus says these words in Matthew 9, 13, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And we just need to hear the counter-cultural way that would have been heard in that day. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. What Jesus is saying here is you don't love holiness if you don't live a life of mercy. If you say you're all about the word of God, the will of God, the ways of God, the Pharisees, you're all about truth, you're all about holiness. And Jesus is saying if, if mercy is not at the heart of that, then God's not. You are the least God-centered people in the world if you're not living a life of Fear of compromise marred mercy in the religious establishment of the day. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus and his disciples are eating and healing. When sometimes? On the Sabbath. And the religious gatekeepers of the day are like, no, 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 you can't do that. And Jesus again goes back to the same Old Testament quote from Hosea 6. Jesus says, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Jesus is saying you don't really know the law of God and you don't really love truth if you don't live mercy. There was also this fear of not receiving credit that marred mercy in the religious establishment of that day, and I think in our southern religious culture we see all these things, is we like ministry that we can count things that are neat and are controlled versus messy stuff. 
So Jesus, as he's laying out these woes, these, these sort of pronouncements of, of actual judgment upon the Pharisees and religious leaders, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, so tithing their spice rack, that's how committed they think they are to holiness, but they've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice we talked about last week, and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. These are strong words. Not from any soft, untruth preacher, but the one who is the truth, Jesus. He says, if you don't love God and others, if you have no mercy, then you're missing the mission of God. And you've got an easy issue, because showing mercy is hard. Showing mercy is messy. That's what we're seeing here. If you don't know this, mercy is not just like, you know, some nice thing we're going to word the cross stitch and hang over our kitchen to look at when we wash dishes to make us have a sentimental feeling about something we heard in church is, is yes, we, and, and all these things you guys are saying, we, we tend to want to show mercy as long as we can control it, as long as we can make sure the outcome is neat, and we show mercy very prejudiced, in very prejudiced ways. We'll show mercy to certain sins, we'll show mercy to a certain extent. But what Jesus is saying here is, blessed are the merciful, and this is really an upside-down look at your life. And there's no place in the Bible I think we see this better, and I know I do have this on this here, Chris, is in what Jesus tells in this parable of the Good Samaritan. And so in Luke chapter 10, we begin to see this. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. So this is sort of this mindset we've seen in the world, this survival of the fittest, this only the strong win, right? If I see someone in a weaker position than me, I better take advantage of them first because it's whoever gets the one another first is who wins. So there's sort of the world of rebellion. But we see here it's not just that Jesus is calling out and not even primarily what he's calling out. It's easy for us to point our fingers out into the world and say, look at how unmerciful the world is. And Jesus always is more concerned about how God's people are displaying God's ways. We should expect unbelievers to act like unbelievers. The church needs to quit railing against the world as much as we believe that judgment begins with the house of God. And as we repent and we turn and we display a different way, a better way, then we can see God's glory begin to overflow and saturate our cities and see lives change. So Jesus says, Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, this man in the ditch as it were, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, this person who represents God really, he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. That is no mercy. I've got no time for that. Right? I don't have time. We see here in the world of rebellion, 
rebellion, a world of religion, equally devoid of the heart of God. Some of you may be secret revenge lovers. You wouldn't want to confess it out loud, but I just ask you right now even to confess it to the Spirit, to God. You, you, you smirk and you like to see other people get what's coming to them. At your job, if somebody who's been, you know, fudging on stuff or doing something that you don't like or just irritating you and you see them, something come on them, you're just like, I knew it. What comes around goes around, and I like it. We do this in our families, with our roommates. We sit back. and We might even sometimes outwardly comfort them make ourselves look merciful and inwardly think, I'm loving it. I'm loving it. And I get to make myself look good like I care about them while inwardly I'm so glad. Some of you probably had parents like that, right, who said maybe things to you that you could tell they were actually happy that you were in the pain that you were in. There's maybe some of you in here who that's how you think God feels about you. And yet we walk around, don't we, expecting everyone to show us mercy. Some of us fear contamination like they did in their day. So we might affirm this vision of Matthew's table, of, of people being around who are the, the least, the lost, the lonely but you don't think it would be proper for you or for your family. You know, I, I believe in all this as long as I can talk about it from afar. I'm not really sure that I could handle that in my life. Some of us, like the Pharisees, fear the compromise of truth so much that we choose to err on the side of legalism instead of the side of love. We would have been with the Pharisees looking on Jesus' day, Jesus day at Matthew's table saying, you know, I understand his heart, but we know we just got to be more careful. If we bring those people into our homes, into our lives, well, you just never know what's going to happen. Some of us will only show mercy to the extent that we can see a return on our investment. But is that mercy? Is that mercy when you say, you know, I'm going to help you if. I'm going to help you if. You know, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. And yet Jesus gives us this, this mission of mercy. This vision of mercy. And what, what is the path? So what is mercy? Consequences either of someone's sin or of someone's misery. And we need to think about what mercy's not as well, though. Mercy's not ignoring justice. Mercy's not ignoring truth. Mercy still makes moral judgments. I mean, this is what Jesus is doing, right? He is saying, they acted wrong. Right? So if we make mercy the absence of truth, then we've taken Jesus out of mercy and we've made mercy in our own image or in the image of the world. Mercy is not being soft. 
When people came to Jesus for mercy and they cried out, Son of David, have mercy on me. This is the extending of mercy actually is from a position of strength. It's from a position of kingdom authority. Mercy's not for weak people. Mercy's for strong people. Because mercy is the relief of a debt that someone else owes. Some contrast it with grace and say, while mercy, mercy deals with the result of sin, while grace deals with the sin itself. Mercy extends relief. Grace extends pardon. But in all of these things, we see mercy is not just a feeling. Mercy is an action. So when it says, blessed are the merciful, it's talking about the character of a person whose life is now lived in a way that demonstrates compassion and care. In this parable of the Good Samaritan, Chris, if you could click on the next one, we see this displayed in a beautiful way. So what does it look like for me to live a life of mercy? The first thing is it means that we need to see. We talked a little bit about this last week. So we see this Samaritan. But as a Samaritan as he journeyed, who came to where he was, the man in the ditch, as it were, and when he saw him, you notice the priest and the Levite, they saw him, but they didn't really see him. They caught him out the corner of their eye, and they said they passed by on the other side. And why do you think they passed by on the other side? What? So it wouldn't be messy. And so they really didn't have to see him. It's hard to walk by somebody when you're looking right at them. You know, if I don't want to have to step over this person who needs help. And so I'm just going to walk over here. And there's a lot of ways we can pass by on the other side in our lives. You know, I just don't want to even be aware of what's over there in that ditch or in that part of our city or in that part of my own heart or in that part of my own life and home. But mercy sees and mercy feels. Notice when he saw him, he had compassion. If you stand here and look at a person long enough, who is broken in need, the potential for you to start to have compassion for someone grows. And to really see somebody is not just to physically see them, it's to, it's to know their story. It's to understand how sin and suffering have worked in their life. And when we begin to take the time to show someone mercy enough to hear their story, it's amazing the compassion that the Spirit can bring up in our hearts. But also, mercy moves. Verse 34, He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to an innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Jesus says, which of these three, priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Mercy doesn't just see, hear the story, and feel compassion. Mercy acts. Mercy moves. Mercy actually provides relief. 
Mercy, notice, takes responsibility for others. That's why this is so messy. We do not want to do this in our flesh. We've got TV shows to watch. We've got restaurants to go eat at. And I don't think those things are bad. I like them too. It's just that's, that's all we want to do. It's what we live for. The last thing here is mercy isn't prejudiced as we think about what mercy is. See, we gloss over this or we skip it or we miss it. But Jesus here is using a Samaritan as the example of what it looks like to actually live how he's calling people to live. To Jewish people, Samaritans were the worst. They didn't even believe in all the Bible. So today, if you're like a... If, if, if you're coming from a conservative mindset, this would have been Jesus using the example of the most liberal, worldly person you could think of to show you what it looked like to live how he's calling you to live. And that stings. That would have really stung these first century Pharisees to say, you know what? Here's a Samaritan. He gets it better than you do. You've got the whole Old Testament memorized, and he gets it better than you do. Really, they would, have, they would have said it in a coarse, harsh way like this. This half-bred heretic. Because the Samaritans were the Jews who intermarried with the Samaritans, the Assyrians during the time between the Testaments. This is harsh. This Jesus is saying, you know, we don't really decide who we show mercy to and who we don't. I heard this story this week that was amazing and unbelievable and it's hard to imagine of a lady, Mary Johnson, 59 years old, who now lives beside this dude, who you'll know who he is in a second, 34-year-old O'Shea Israel. So they live side by side in these apartments and they share a porch. What's crazy about this is in 1993, this Israel guy shot Miss Johnson's son in the head and killed. Because Israel was involved in drugs and gangs, he tried as an adult and sentenced to 25 and a half years. He served 17 years before being released. And now he lives in the neighborhood where he grew up, but he lives next door to the woman of the son that is the, the mother of the man he murdered. Now, how did this happen? How did that, was that just coincidence? No, that's what makes this story crazy. It says, Miss Johnson said she originally wanted to show, wanted justice to see Israel locked up for what he had done. She said, my son, my son was gone. I was angry. I hated this boy and everything about him. It was like a tsunami in my life. Shock, dis, disbelief, hatred, anger, more hatred, more blame, more hatred. I wanted him caged up like the animal that he was. She found a support group through a church that counseled mothers and encouraged them who had been through things like this. She said it hurt so bad. Hurt is hurt. Then a few years ago, this is crazy, this is not in a Christian magazine, this is in the, the Telegraph in London. The 59-year-old teacher and devout Christian, that's what's amazing, right, in this 
unbelieving paper. Christian asked if she could meet Israel, the man who killed her son, in, in Minnesota's Stillwater State Prison. She said she felt compelled to see if there was a way in which she could forgive her son's killer. Well, at first he refused to meet with her. For nine months he wouldn't meet with her. He didn't want to have any part of it. Figured it was a setup, figured it was a trick. He was just shocked. But finally, the first thing he said that she said was, look, you don't know me and I don't know you, so let's just start where we are right now. He said he was shocked that they began to regularly meet. And then when he was released from prison about 18 months ago, Miss Johnson introduced him to her landlord, who with her blessing invited Israel to move into the building. says that now Miss Johnson and Israel are close friends. Situations she puts down to her strong religious beliefs. She says unforgiveness is like cancer. It will eat you from the inside out. It's not as much about the other person. Me forgiving him does not diminish what he's done. Yes, he murdered my son. But the forgiveness is for me. conversation can take you a long way. God's way is beautiful, but it's crazy. You know, we got to feel that, right? This sounds crazy. And what we talk about in our church a lot is we want to live in such a way that demands a gospel explanation. You see, the reason we don't have more opportunities to share the gospel with people, the reason that we have to come up with all of these sort of contrived and silly presentations of sharing our faith is because we don't live any differently from anyone else in the world and so no one ever asks us why we're so different. But if you want a simple, easy way that will cost you no money and require you to not have to come to some training I'll give at some point on how to share the gospel, it's just go out and live a life of mercy. It will blow people's minds. Nobody has categories for this in our culture. We've got to start to see. We've got to look. We've got to see the people in our homes and where they're suffering and where they're sinning. And we don't come to them to bring down the hammer. We come to bring mercy. We come to speak the truth, but we come to bring healing with the truth. At home, at work, in our neighborhoods, in our common missions, and for many of us in the mirror. For some of you, you can't extend mercy to anyone else because you have no mercy for yourself. You hear things like compassion and you sort of scoff inwardly. It's really because we've not walked through where Jesus has led us so far. You've not been comforted by God not mourned your sin and suffering. You've not received the gospel. You don't really yet believe that God's mercy is enough for you. So therefore, you don't believe God's mercy is there for us. To see, we have to feel compassion. I don't think we need to move. I don't think we need to speak until we have seen and we've felt. So many of us are quick to speak, right? 
God's word gives us a good help on this. Be slow to speak and quick to listen. So before we're ready to insert ourselves in a situation, whether through our words or through our works, we need to say, have I first saw this? Have I listened? Have I heard the story behind what's going on in this person's life? And have I, have I listened to the point that now I can feel compassion for this person? I'm going to keep my mouth shut until then other than asking questions. I'm going to see. I'm going to listen. I'm going to feel. I had a friend one time that went through a season where he was doubting everything that he ever believed about who God was. And there were many people who were just ready to prounce in and tell him what, well, what a slippery slope he was on, how he was endangering his life, how he was going to ruin and wreck everything. And all these things, guess what, you could say, but they're true. And they were true. But what he needed was someone to listen to him. Someone to feel the pain that he felt. Because if you've ever went through a season of doubt in your life, doubting everything you were ever taught, it's not like that's fun. It's not like you're sitting around saying, you know what I'd really like to do? Discard everything I've ever believed. And ruin all my relationships with my family and friends. And what happened was sad because as people continued to pound him and hammer him with what was true, it didn't bring him back to Christ. It pushed him away. And yet through the mercy of God, people who listen, now he continues to follow Jesus through the word it was only through the path of mercy. Every week is we cannot give what we've not yet received. And to get to receive it, we've got to first own where we are. So if this is you this morning, and your inner voice is, I like seeing vengeance. If you have this vision of life that is more led by something more like karma than grace, if your first gut reaction is to people. If I show mercy to them, they'll never learn. If you have the inner priest and Levite at work where you put blinders on your life because you don't want to be inconvenienced by having to see and feel the pain of people around you or the pain in your own life or even in your own home. If you just want to be a part of a church that gives you service projects to occasionally do so that you can go home and pat yourself on the back and say, I'm a, a nice person. but not really get in the messiness of the mercy of relationships. If you're a person who just wants to say, but it's true, and I want justice for everyone, then Jesus wants to say to each of us, starting with this guy right here this morning, all right, let's start with you. everybody to get the hammer dropped on them? Let's start with you. You want everybody who doesn't dot all their I's and cross all their T's right? Well, let's start with you. You don't want to welcome people to your table because they're so messy and you don't want to show mercy because you feel like if I show mercy nobody's ever going to learn? Well, let's start with you. And again, we're back to the beginning of the Beatitudes, aren't we? Poor in spirit, mourning, meek. 
What do we deserve? In the story of the Good Samaritan, guess what? You're not the Good Samaritan. You're the guy in the ditch. That's who we are. We're dead in the ditch, deserving nothing. For those of us who would say, well, I wonder how many times that guy's been in the ditch. You know? That's us. Jesus wants to know how many times have you been in the ditch? I've been in it a lot. I'll probably be in it before the end of the day. Right? I'll be thinking, oh, look at all the people who weren't here this morning. Right? And I'll make it about me. Instead of about him. But when Jesus sees us dead, dying, and deserving of it all in the ditch, he doesn't say, I don't want to look at that. He looks. He sees. He saw from the perfect place of heaven. He saw us. He chose to look. He chose to see. And he felt it says Jesus looked upon the crowds, he saw, and he felt compassion. In the depths of his gut, he felt, and he moved, and he loved. And although some debate whether it's actually, actually supposed to be considered canonical scripture or not, as the woman was about to be stoned, they wanted to get, but it's true. He said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. But he wasn't soft. Because then he looked at her and he said, now go and sin no more. Isn't Jesus amazing? None of us in here are balanced. But he is, praise God, he's balanced for us. He didn't disregard justice, but he also satisfied mercy. He said, sin is this bad. It's so bad the Son of God will have to go upon a cross and bear it for you because you could never do anything to work it off. And what's so hard about mercy is because we don't want to relieve the consequences for other people's sins. But that's what His work is all about. That's what happens on the cross. He takes the consequences we deserve upon Himself bears them for us, and provides for us relief. He pays the debt that we owe. It's only a debt He could pay. He became no mercy that we unmerciful people could be called forgiveness. And from that cross, as He was taking upon the full wrath God, he looked at us guilty, unmerciful, entitled, people who don't want to be inconvenienced or made to feel have uncomfort in our lives, and he said to us, Father, forgive them. Isn't it not amazing? He said, Father, they don't want to be merciful to anybody, but I say, relieve the penalty of their sin. And he wasn't prejudiced. We read in Revelation chapter 5 that it says that he redeemed people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. 
He didn't say, oh, well, those people need to get their act together. There were no those. There, were no, there was no us versus them. It was the world that God loved. And he sent his son to die. He is the great Samaritan in every way. So the text ends by saying, blessed are those who are merciful for they shall receive mercy. He's, he's not saying you're earning mercy. That's the opposite of mercy. He would be contradicting himself. What he's saying here is that those who have become poor in spirit, who've mourned their sin, who have become meek and who have pursued and found righteousness in Christ, they receive such mercy. Now they give such mercy and they will continually stand in the state of those who will live in the mercy of God. There's no better picture of this. There's really no better illustration as we close, then Matthew 18. I just want to read this throughout a time and let it set with us. Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? So Peter's thinking, I'm a pretty good guy here. right? I can show mercy seven times. Jesus says to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. He's not wanting us to get out and add that up. Right? He's saying this is, this is a state that you live in, not a checklist you perform. And he tells this story. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. There's a big debt. So the servant fell on his knees begging him, have patience with me and I'll, I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him all the debt. Mercy. Isn't that amazing? That's what, that's what God has done for us through Jesus. But it goes on. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him just a hundred denarii. Remember, he's been forgiven 10,000 talents. He owes him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, just like he did. Have patience with me and I'll pay you. But he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. That's how we often live our lives, isn't it? I've been forgiven so much. I've been shown so much mercy that I'm going to make everybody in my life pay. Verse 31, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is what Jesus is saying in Matthew 5, 7. 
Right? You've been forgiven. You've been shown mercy this much. If that mercy isn't real in your life, then guess what? You've never really owned it. You've never really received it. You've never really made this a part of your life. We're so afraid people are going to get let off the hook. This is the beauty of the cross. This is the beauty of the return of Jesus. No one's getting left off the hook. Either their sins are fully paid for in the cross, or when Jesus returns, all things will be set to right. But if we trust God, if we can live in mercy, when we receive this, then we can show mercy in our families, to our co-workers, to ourselves, to people in our lives that aren't like us, with other political views, other religions, or no religions. We can see them, we can listen, we can love, and then we can speak the truth. We can open our tables. Because we realize, above all, mercy isn't about trusting others. Mercy is about trusting God. Father, we